0: Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home fort, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. All-Marine Radio, known as All-Marine Radio, right here on the All-Warrior Radio Network. Um, interesting article um, about the military's treatment of sexual assault. And I'm going to put it up on the read board because I don't really want it to. Um, I don't re- really want it to dis- distract from the point of today's program, and that is the testimony of General Thomas and the testimony of Major General Olson last week um, before um, the House Subcommittee on readiness, and so that's what today's about, and that's what I want to direct your attention to, but I'll post this article to the uh, to the read board, and, um, and then we'll discuss it at some point later on in the week, and I, I talked to you about what the data said in the articles I read in the past, I, I brought to you a, an article written by a prosecutor. Talking about the problems of evidence in the vast majority of these cases, and, and why sexual assault is brought to court martial way more in the military than anywhere else, and why the conviction rate so low. And what would ultimately happen is that if you send it to its own, uh, you would impact a commander's authority. The conviction rate rate wouldn't go would would go up because you're going to prosecute less cases because professional prosecutors won't take cases that commanding officers do, and the difference is good order and discipline versus getting a conviction. So the conviction rate will go up, total convictions will not, and then we'll have this discussion. Well, why? Well, this article goes into the footnotes um, of The article goes into the footnotes of uh, of military justice, and I think you'll be pretty astounded by what you read, and I mean astounded in terms of you are way more likely to be prosecuted in the American military, because this is not a military problem, this is a societal problem with young people in particular, right? it spans all age group but in particular with young people and so i think you'll find it very interesting to uh, i think you'll find it very interesting to look at what the data says and then the question becomes this study that, that this data cites it was done i think finished in 2018 i mean general milley was the chief of staff of the army at the time And, um, and so, um, does he not know this? I mean, what he said last week was, you know, the reason we haven't made any progress on this. And so you're like, he, he couldn't have read the study. Cause what the study points out is the military, you know, is probably the national example of how to get after this problem. So, very interesting. Now, I don't want to get too distracted with that. I'll bring it up with the Menses. And then then the question is, you know, why is General Milley rolling over so quick? Oh, because it's a political issue and he's a politician? Uh, I got it. I got it. But I want to switch gears. Today what you're going to hear is General Thomas... And um, Major General Olson, General Thomas, the assistant commandant, Major General Olson, uh, the director of the Marine Corps staff, and you're going to hear them testifying um, along with a vice admiral for the Navy who actually has a son who's a Marine. And you're going to hear their testimony, right? And you're going to hear all of it, and um, and I think it's important. And then tomorrow what you're going to hear – Um, tomorrow, what you're going to hear is the Mensa Brothers plus one, and um, and our one is going to be Mike Marletto. And the question that I'm asking them is, you know, th- they will have listened to the same testimony that that I played the last two days. So you've heard General Thomas talk now you've heard the parents you've heard general Thomas talk and general Olson right what is the what is the problem here that needs to be solved again channeling my inner will what is the problem that we're solving here so um so that's what you i what what I would like you to listen to I mean if you're at all interested in the issue um in the contemporary in the contemporary Marine Corps, wh- what you know, what problem are we solving here? And again, uh, just a couple of data points: the AV has been in the American inventory since 1972. We've been doing amphibious operations forever. We've never had an accident like this ever, ever. The level of professionalism that we're we're talking about is at the is at the platoon, the company, and the battalion level. We're not talking about whether we're not talking about um, big Navy, big Marine Corps, whether they can get along. We're not talking about that. We're talking about whether you can read orders, whether you can train Marines, whether you can supervise the blocking and tackling, whether you can do maintenance, whether you can report your maintenance. Those are all basic, basic things, in my opinion. Okay? Those are the issues. Not big blue arcing arrow bullshit. So... <clears throat> um. I'm going to get out of the way. You're going to hear that testimony. I will post the article that I just referenced relative to sexual assault. Um, I'll post that on the read board. And you can, you'll can you find it there today. But I, I think it's really important that uh, that you hear this testimony. And so th- this is the first real in-detailed spoken words by the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps and by the Chief of the Marine Corps Staff all right, in detail, and here's what they think the problems are, okay? So uh, I want you to listen to that, and then tomorrow you'll hear there'll be, for the first time, there'll be five of us. Yeah, Mike Marletto's going to join us, so excited about that. Mike's a former chief of staff, um, 1st Marine Division, uh, incredible career, incredible reputations, commanding officer, 11th Marine Regiment uh, during the march up, Wrote the fire support plan for the march up for the first marine division. Uh, just a great, great guy, and with great, and and so it'd be fun to have him on, uh, and 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 get his thoughts on all this. So, the uh, United States Marine Corps band makes this morning official. Good morning. Mm-hmm. Again, this is, um, it's dedicated to the families of eight Marines and one United States Navy sailor, a corpsman who were killed in an, a training event in July of 2021. And, um, what this discussion today begins to focus on is are we are we solving the right problems? Or is this another kabuki dance? Okay. And and again I referenced yesterday and you can find it on the website the interview that I did with Walt Yates. Okay. So if you go to If you go to the podcast page and you go into the post for yesterday, you'll see the link to the interview with Walt Yates. Walt Yates talks about how these recommendations from these investigations go to places that have to decide on funding right, for things that remedy these things. And those people then modify standards and either <clears throat> allocate resources to those or they say, no, we're not going to do it. And then when it happens again, hopefully nobody connects the dots. Well, Walt Yates connects those dots. And I would tell you, when you lay these investigations out, this one, the F-18 KC-130 collision, you know, off of, uh, off of Japan, another Amtrak sinking, the Osprey. When you you see this trend, right, you see a trend. And so I think professionals don't react so much to individual incidents, but they do react to trends. And that's what we're talking about here. So this is dedicated to those families. And it's dedicated to the proposition that everybody has a responsibility to solve the right problem, do the right thing, So nobody else has to go through this. I think everybody's committed to it, but I'll tell you what, when you begin, again, when you begin to connect the dots on these past events with this event, and you look at the action of the institution, it raises disturbing questions. (laughs)
4: challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win.
0: check the weather, and then we'll head to Capitol Hill. Um, Currently in Quantico, partly sunny, 65, down the coast at Camp Lejeune, where my oldest is doing his change of command today, yep, leaving the 2nd Marine Division, Um, cloudy in 67, 29 Palms, partly sunny, and 77. Camp Pendleton, clouds in 60. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy, 69. Okinawa, dark cloudy, 77. Darwin, dark cloudy, 77. Never seen that before. Uh, in Oslo, that's in Norway, it is uh, partly sunny and 56 right now. Currently in the Coast of Minnesota, Newport Beach area of Southern California, it is cloudy and 61 degrees Looking for a high of around 70 today, 71 to be exact, 70 tomorrow, 69 on Thursday, 69 on Friday, 69 on Saturday. So that is a uh, that is a look at your weather. So uh, without further ado, um, I, I would, I, you know, again, if you're at all interested in these kind of issues, um, it's like reading footnotes, right? Um, I want... I want you to listen to this testimony um from last week. That is this is the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps testifying before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Readiness, chaired by a California representative by the name of John Garamendi. Garamondi. Garamendi, one of the two. Been around California politics for a long time. Um and um and it's interesting because in the testimony, I want to say at least two, maybe three of the members of the, of the subcommittee um, are former Marines, infantrymen. Yeah, I know two of them are for sure. I think a third one is. And they, and they asked some pretty interesting questions about all of this based on their own personal experiences. So, um, again, I will get out of the way of this. Without further ado, um, this is their testimony. Now, yesterday and today lead into tomorrow, which is, okay, you've heard the parents, you've heard, um, and you've heard their, uh, you've heard general officers of the Marine Corps testifying in open session uh, in the most detailed discussion of this event that we've seen. So, in your opinion, what problem is the Marine Corps solving here? All right? And do they have it right? So that's the question. And, and again, why is this important? Well, the Marine Corps is committed to being the maritime force in readiness with more Marines at sea in a more dispersed manner. So if water skills are important right then i think this discussion is important and we're bringing a new av right to market so it's not like oh yeah well this doesn't apply anymore because these vehicles are going away in 24 months oh no we're buying a whole new fleet of them so uh with that said here is uh here is uh the testimony from last week it happened on May 3rd, which would have been Monday of last week. So a week ago yesterday.
1: We're back on the record for panel, for panel two of today's hearing. Uh, I understand that we've been able to uh, get an extra half hour here. So we'll go until 1.30. Uh, As I've stated before, and it bears repeating, the tragic events of 30 July 2020 were preventable. As I reread the investigation in preparation for this hearing, I was once again gripped by the sense of dread associated with reading the details of the multiple systemic failures that led to the loss of nine service members in the prime of their life. The Marine Corps failed, failed to adequately maintain the material readiness of the AAV fleet. The Navy, the Navy and the Marine Corps totally failed to ensure that personnel were adequately trained to ensure that this exercise could be performed safely. The Navy and the Marine Corps failed to effectively integrate with each other to ensure that roles and responsibilities were adequately or even minimally understood and that there was someone, someone, with sufficient seniority who was paying attention, monitoring the changing events, and constantly conducting and updating the risk management, the safety, or the lack of safety. The Navy and the Marine Corps totally failed to understand and to flag that after two decades of focusing on land-based combat, the proficiency for amphibious operations may have been lost, may have atrophied, and that personnel needed additional training to conduct the exercise safely. The leadership of the Navy and Marine Corps totally failed to account for the potential problems that COVID-19 would have on readiness of these units. They were so desperate as they showed us, as they said in hearings, formal hearings, that not to worry, we've overcome the impacts of COVID and our readiness has not diminished. Gentlemen, that was not true as tragically shown in this incident. What's most upsetting to me is the failure of the surface Navy and the Marine Corps to develop a culture of safety that would empower junior service members to alert the chain of command when there's a breach of safety protocols, to be heard, to not be ignored. We don't have to invent that culture. It does exist. It does exist in naval aviation and naval reactors community. That culture needs to be in every part of both the Navy and the Marine Corps and indeed the other services as well. The Navy and Marine Corps leadership must make a decision. They must decide to not allow the status quo to continue. The nine members of the Marine Corps, the nine, eight members of the Marine Corps and one member of the Navy that were lost were not the first. Indeed, the Marine Corps has lost 60 Marines in training accidents in just the last five years, 60 in five years, and more than 130 in the previous 10 years. There's an eerie echo here of the Marine Corps hymn. These losses have been in the air, on the land and sea. As Mr. Courtney said in his earlier statement, the surface Navy is still struggling to adopt Sustained cultural changes in the wake of the loss of 17 sailors on the U.S. McCain and Fitzgerald. We passed laws. We provided money, and these tragedies continue. We've honored these nine members of our military with appropriate funerals and services. But I will say this, the only way to really honor their loss is that the Marine Corps and the Navy develop a culture of safety. This is not war, this is training. This subcommittee and indeed the full committee demands better. I know that there are additional investigations underway command investigations, and we'll get to those with a subsequent hearing and we'll be focusing on the events specific to this issue to this tragedy and to what the Navy and the Marine Corps are doing to prevent it from happening again. With that, I return. My colleague
5: and ranking member, Mr. Lamborn,
1: for his opening statement. Uh,
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for having this hearing. Uh, Thank you for our witnesses for being here. Uh, I'm going to keep this short so we can get into your testimony and the give and take with questions afterwards in the limited time that we have. But I want to know in a broad sense, what is the Marine Corps doing to foster a better safety environment? Obviously, there were a number of issues of things that went wrong in this particular incident. And more specifically, uh, and more specifically, I want to know what's happening with the proficiency for amphibious landings. Uh, amphibious landings, obviously, were not a priority in our Iraq and Afghanistan uh, conflicts in recent years. But with a pivot toward the Pacific, absolutely becomes a priority. So I want to know about that in particular and with AAVs. you know, Why are AAVs uh, so decrepit and so poorly maintained? Um, do we need to buy new ones? Are they not being maintained in a good state of readiness? What's the issue there? So those are the things I want to hear about when we go through our testimony. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back.
1: Uh, and following their testimony, we'll go through the normal gavel order of questions. Joining us today is General Gary Thomas, Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, Vice Admiral Roy Fritschner, Commander of Naval Surface Forces, and Major General Greg Olson, Assistant Deputy Commandant, Plans, Policies, and Operations, Headquarters, United States Marine. Gentlemen, your formal testimony will be put in the hearing record. Mr. Thomas, General Thomas, would you please proceed?
6: Chairman Garamendi, Ranking Member Lamborn, and distinguished members of this subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today to discuss the sinking of an assault amphibious vehicle on july thirtieth, twenty twenty, and how the Marine Corps can improve its safety culture. Today, Vice Admiral Kitchener, Major General Olson, and I are prepared to answer questions about what happened, what we have learned, and what we are doing to enact change. First and foremost, the sinking of this AAV and the deaths of eight Marines and one Sailor were preventable. Preventable in so many ways, but we failed. We failed these brave young men. The testimony that we just heard from the families represented here today is heartbreaking. We also mourn their loss and extend our deepest sympathy to their loved ones. Though it is little comfort to the families, We will honor their memory by taking the necessary actions to prevent a tragedy like this from ever happening again. We owe this to these service members and their families. The command investigation provided sufficient detail about the direct causes of the AAV sinking. However, I believe there's more that we can learn about how this incident occurred and how to prevent similar tragedies in the future. I have directed a general officer to conduct a follow-on investigation into the forming of the Marine Expeditionary Unit, including training and readiness oversight up to the Marine Expeditionary Force level. This investigation is in progress and we will provide the findings to this subcommittee after headquarters Marine Corps review. We will also seek the counsel of a blue ribbon panel of outside experts so that we can capitalize on the generations of amphibious experience that resides outside of our ranks. It is a Navy Marine Corps imperative to train to standard for amphibious operations. Future operating concepts and the lives of our Marines and sailors demand that we increase our common understanding of the requirements for operations from the sea. To date, 11 Marines have been or will be held accountable for their respective roles in this tragedy in accordance with applicable law and regulations. Some of these accountability actions are ongoing, including boards to consider separation from the service. We make decisions regarding accountability based on an individual's responsibilities and their performance of duties. An individual's rank neither obligates nor excuses them from accountability. As we learn more about this tragedy, we will take additional measures as appropriate. More broadly, the Marine Corps recognizes that our historic ground and aviation accident trends must change course. Over the past few years, we have improved our safety reporting mechanisms, our information sharing and safety management practices. As a result of these and other efforts, we are seeing reduction in vehicle rollovers. And from 2019 to 2021, we saw our lowest aviation flight mishap rate on record. However, the 2020 sinking of this AAV and other recent accidents make it clear that the Marine Corps' safety culture must improve and that Marines at all levels must make better risk decisions. Every Marine must be empowered to assess risk and speak up when they see something unsafe. Commanders must provide the necessary oversight to mitigate risk and stop operations when the risk is too high. Commanders must also develop command climates that value and reward hazard reporting. At an institutional level, we must provide the guidance and resources that support good decision-making. We also have to manage operational tempo so that our Marines and sailors have the opportunity to complete necessary training in a safe and productive manner. We're committed to providing the leadership and resources to make these changes. We appreciate your oversight and continued support as we learn from our past and make lasting changes to our safety culture. We look forward to answering your questions.
1: General, thank you very much. I now turn to uh, Vice Admiral Krichner, Commander, Naval Circus Forces.
2: Good morning, Chairman Uramendi, Ranking Member Lamborn and distinguished members of the readiness subcommittee. I appreciate the opportunity to testify today. I too want to begin by expressing my personal condolences to the families of our fallen Marines and sailor who served their country with pride and honor. This devastating loss underscores the very dangerous work our sailors and Marines perform each day and are all volunteer force. And it once again reminds us of our solemn obligation to provide each service member an environment where risk is being properly managed. We are committed as a Navy Marine Corps team to ensure that events such as this does not happen again. I just listened to the testimony of Mr. Vienna and Mr. Ostrovsky about their personal loss and poor experience with the casualty assistant calls officer or CACO process. I spoke with Mr. and Mrs. Vienna before and I'm incredibly grateful that they were willing to share their experience with me. I'm deeply saddened that the Navy CACO process did not work as it should have for this grieving family. I reached out. To my counterparts who oversee the CACO process, and they are reviewing what happened with the Viennas as well as any improvements that may result. The Navy is committed to understanding not only how our actions may have contributed to this tragedy, but also how we can better support families in the future. And I say this not only as a commander, but also as a father of four, three of whom are serving in the military, including one enlisted Marine at Camp Pendleton. Immediately following the tragic events on 30 July, the Navy and Marine Corps implemented a safety pause of AAV operations. The Navy has not resumed waterborne AAV operations and will not do so until we are satisfied that all necessary policies, procedures, and risk mitigation measures are in place. Additionally, all commanding officers and well-deck teams will be trained to these new requirements and will have reviewed the specific lessons learned before AAVs embark a Navy ship. The Marine Corps investigation discovered inconsistencies in the Navy and Marine Corps operating procedures and policies for waterborne AV operations. I am working deliberately and urgently with my Marine Corps counterpart to look across the full range of Navy Marine Corps integrated operations to ensure that our operating procedures are aligned, including a joint policy on the use of safety boats and clear lines of authorities during training evolutions. We are committed as a Navy Marine Corps team to put sailors and Marines, to not put sailors and Marines at risk while they examine our integrated policies and procedures. While the Navy fully supports the finding and recommendations of the Marine Corps investigation, the Marine Corps investigation did not fully address Navy actions on this fatal day. We are accountable as an organization and must fully address whether Navy action or inaction contributed to the incident and what changes to practice and policy we must make to to recommencing waterborne AAV operations. Accordingly, we initiated our own command investigation with a team of 16 Navy, Marine Corps and civilian subject matter experts in areas such as planning, Navy and Marine Corps integration and training and operational safety. Our investigation is expected to be completed within 30 days. Professional seamanship is the standard with no exception. We owe that to the Marines and sailors in our care. It is in our culture to critically evaluate then make and effectively implement necessary changes. Although we operate in a dangerous and demanding environment and will never be able to eliminate all risk, you have my word that we will, with great speed, provide you, the American people, and our Navy Marine Corps team, with our critical assessment of our current procedures and our plan to best mitigate risk as we move forward with integrated amphibious operations to ensure this never happens again. On behalf of all sailors, their families and our Navy civilians, I thank you for your continued support and look forward to your questions.
1: Uh, Thank you, Admiral. I now turn to uh, Major General Greg Olson. Assistant Deputy Commandant Plans, Policies, Operations.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member and other distinguished members of the subcommittee. As I make ready to answer your questions, let me note my deep sadness regarding this preventable tragedy. I have years of experience with amphibious assault vehicles, including my first tour as a 20 something lieutenant. I can put myself in the place of these young men who are counting on others to keep them safe. I've done my underwater egress training, and I know the fear and disorientation that results when you're rapidly submerged. I also know the value of the training in saving lives. Every time I review the details of this tragedy, I'm struck by its senselessness. My heart goes out to the families of the young men who died, and I especially appreciate the bravery of the two witnesses testified in front of the previous panel. As I answer your questions, please do not make, please do not mistake my fact tone for any lack of empathy. I'm simply trying to keep my emotions in check. I look forward to your questions. Uh,
1: thank you, General. Uh, I have a uh, document dated March 26, 2021, and it's signed by General Thomas. It speaks to the issues at hand and what the Marine Corps is specifically doing uh, to address the tragedy and the failures that occurred in this uh, incident. Point number eight, General Thomas, you said the loss of these eight Marines and one sailor was a preventable tragedy. He went on to say, We mourn the loss of their lives and share their families' enduring grief. The Marines and sailors who died made the ultimate sacrifice while serving their fellow Marines, and the nation will never be forgotten. Uh, General Thomas, those words need to be followed up by action. You've laid out seven specific actions that the Marine Corps intends to take. In our communication prior to this hearing, I told you that the construction industry in the United States has instituted a safety officer always on site, always there to review and with a whistle to stop the construction activity if something is not safe. I recommend to you that the Navy should consider. Such a safety officer on all risky. Operations. As I look at the. Seven recommendations that you've made. I don't see an opportunity in any of those. Was someone to blow the whistle and call timeout. Clearly that could and should have happened in this tragedy, but it didn't. I wanna hear from you how you can assure us that the issues of safety will be paramount in exercises. General Thomas. What assurances can you give us that your seven recommendations will lead to someone having the power to blow the whistle and stopping the exercise until safety can be assured?
6: Thank you, Chairman. Um, The first thing that I would say is that, uh, and you've alluded to this, this is our safety culture has got to improve. All Marines need to understand that safety culture or, or a culture of excellence is integral to mission success. I share your view on making sure we have adequate oversight and we are looking at adding additional safety specialists at the right place to ensure that our exercises are as safe as they possibly can be. That in addition to Established safety protocols are the types of things that are required to get our safety culture where it needs to be. I would point out that no one person is able to see all the intricacies of an exercise. And so equally as important to having the right people with oversight is to, as you've alluded to, Chairman, empowering Marines to stand up. Or speak up when they see something that is unsafe and for them uh, to be heard. And then for leaders at all levels to provide necessary oversight to mitigate risk, and then to stop operations when that risk is too high. I would tell you, Chairman, that in all the exercises that we do across the Marine Corps every day, every exercise at some point, Marines are standing up and pausing operations, and that's exactly what we need to do in this case, which is where we failed in this particular exercise. But we're taking a hard look at that, Chairman, and we will keep this committee informed as we go forward.
1: I'm going to uh, forego additional questions. I suspect most of the questions will be asked by my colleagues uh, that I would have asked. So I'm going to turn over to uh, Mr. Lamborn. Uh, But before I do, I think the answer, I think the number is 137 Marines have died in various accidents, uh, training accidents over the last decade, 60 in the last uh, five years. Mr. Lamborn, it's your turn. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Excuse me, Mr. Mr. uh, Lamborn.
7: You're not limited to five minutes. From what I heard.
5: Can Can you hear me okay? Yes, please go ahead. And Mike Johnson, you may want to mute Mike Johnson. Uh, Okay. Uh, General or Admiral, whoever wants to take this question, uh, obviously there were some real deficiencies with the training regime that was in place that were not followed or should have been followed, shouldn't have been in place. But also when it comes to the equipment and the AAVs in particular, uh, it seemed like it was – disaster waiting to happen uh these AAVs were taking on water the bilge pumps weren't able to keep up the batteries weren't sufficient uh it, there were a lot of specific things that were wrong with these AAVs and a subsequent inspection found that most uh, many of them failed <clears throat> I believe the majority once they were inspected failed inspection and 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 should not be used so uh What will the Marine Corps do with the need for better AAVs in the future? This is something our subcommittee, uh, besides the training aspect, is going to want to look at. So, So what's the best insight you can give us on how to get to a better state where we have AAVs that are good for training and actually good in actual conflict? Thank you. A congressman, I'll, I'll start
6: and then I'll turn it over to General Olson. But uh, let me be clear. The AV platoon should have received vehicles in a higher state of material readiness than they did. These are old vehicles, but they are they are broadly well understood of what is required to keep them up. Although we have learned some things since the mishap that General Olson has, uh, will, will describe. Uh, but we will, I assure you, we will fully resource uh, any requirement to keep this uh, vehicle in a high state of material readiness until it's sundown in uh, 2026. Let me turn it over to General Olson
4: for any additional fill-in. Ranking Member Lamborn, you are 100% correct, sir. These vehicles were delivered in, as the investigating officer notes, horrible condition. Twelve of the 13 were inoperable on the 20th of April. All should have been ready for both land and water operations. The AAV platoon mechanics, augmented by three mechanics from the parent battalion, did return them to condition code for land operations in time for a land-only mechanized raid course. By the time they got on board ship, they had been returned to what we thought was waterborne capable. What we found in our subsequent inspections after a safety of use message came up on the 31st of July, was that we had a problem across the fleet with our watertight integrity. Some 54% of the vehicles that were inspected had failures in the watertight integrity of their plenum doors. That's the large intakes on the front that permit air to come out in and out of an engine that's underwater. 18% had cargo hatches that were leaking in excess of what they should have been. And fully 50% had inoperable emergency escape lighting systems. There were other discrepancies as well none of those vehicles are permitted back into the water until they are returned to operable condition the watertight integrity testing regime has been instantiated into our technical manuals and into our technical instructions we had not been inspecting to the level of detail necessary to determine these discrepancies as as chairman garamendi noted it may have been that 20 years of landward operations have have caused us to lose some of our amphibious edge to that end, we are moving out on a detailed watertight integrity regime that will ensure that no vehicle goes in the water without being watertight and integral. You are correct about the bilge pumps. There are bilge pumps on every AAV that can expel water at a rate far greater than typically enters. AAVs leak, but the 400 and some odd gallons per minute that they can pump over the side should have been sufficient in this case. In this case, it was not. The vehicle had far greater mechanical degradation than we knew of. And when the transmission failed, the hydraulic bilge pumps failed. When the transmission failed, the engine went to idle and ceased charging the batteries. And then when the engine compartment itself filled with water, the generator failed and effectively the vehicle was without power. We know we have things to fix and we know we have a glide slope to 2026 when the amphibious combat vehicle will be fully operationally capable. In the meantime, we will continue to sustain and fund the AAV fleet to include finishing off the return to condition code alpha. If you think about sending a vehicle back for depot level maintenance and it's returned to you in like new condition, well, even the inspections of the RCCA vehicles noted that we have a watertight integrity issue that must be addressed. We'll make these vehicles watertight and we will not put them in the water unless they are so.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back the balance of my time.
1: gavel order is uh, Courtney and Wilson, and uh, then we'll have additional. I note uh, Representative Moulton, when he spoke earlier and talked of his own experience with the AAV and the Iraqi situation, said he and his colleagues sat on top fearing <clears throat> being unable to get out of. They had to if they were inside. We'll come to you, and Mr. Moulton, a little later, and I suspect you'll want to talk about that. Mr. Courtney?
8: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you to the witnesses. Admiral Kitchener, um, uh, in 2017, we had the uh, two collisions in, uh, in the um, indo Pacific region, um, Fitzgerald and McCain, and after that, uh, CNO uh, Richardson ordered a complete, comprehensive review, and that was in addition to all the normal investigations, which we've already heard about this morning, um, uh, for this incident. And uh, but the, the point of the com- comprehensive review was really to look at structural changes in terms of the whole decision making for uh, sending uh, large surface uh, ships uh, out in the Pacific region, where um, again the Operations commander was kind of overruling or, um, you know, just overriding um, any concerns regarding uh, training certifications, uh, ship readiness, and, and clearly there was this string of um, completely unacceptable accidents and loss of life that was, was identified as flowing from it. Again, the CR, the comprehensive review, ended up with a large number of recommendations you described a command-level report that's uh, in, the, in the works right now that we're going to get back within the next 30 days or so. I mean, is that, what, is that what that's looking at? Is that looking, again, not just at the specifics of who's responsible, but really the structural system that's in place in terms of um, sending AAVs out that uh, really are not safe? Uh,
2: Representative Courtney, thank you for the question. Uh, you know, the Navy cooperated fully with the Marine Corps in the investigation and, and provided access to you know, records, logs, and, and, and many witnesses. And when we reviewed the investigation, uh, we agreed with the, the fundamental conclusions that there were no causal factors attributable to the Navy. However, what we did find were it left uh, a few questions unanswered. And uh, what we are, so we decided to open our own investigation to understand, you know, what actions and decisions that Navy personnel made that day could have contributed to the tragedy, and then what policies and and practices uh, may be required and and must be improved. So we stood up a team of of 16 people uh, that made up of Navy, Marine Corps, and civilian personnel, and they were we specifically asked them to look at. Uh, the actions of the the personnel that day and the planning and the approval and the execution of the operation. Uh, Additionally, we asked them to look at the communications between Navy and Marine Corps personnel prior to, during, and in the aftermath of the incident. Uh, We also asked them to look at a number of, assess the impact of a number of uh, conditions that day that may have been contributing factors, you know, for example, the sea state in the morning and the sea state in the afternoon, uh, the operation, the use, uh, the policies and use of safety boats and uh, who was making those decisions. And and finally, we asked them to look at the command and control structure. And was there a rigid one in place that clearly delineated authorities? Was it briefed at the concept of operations and was here to... Uh, during the operation. Uh, You you know, as from the McCain and Fitzgerald incidents, uh, we have worked very hard at our safety culture. And we expect and encourage all sailors to have a questioning attitude, to expect to find conditions that require and to also make sure that they act on unsafe conditions and not ignore them. And it is up to us as leaders to create that environment that facilitates that action.
8: Well, thank you, Emma. I, you know, I would just note though that the CR did come back and identify uh, real um, weaknesses in the existing system after McCain in ways that we could structurally and by law actually uh, prevent that. And, and as I mentioned earlier today, I mean, Congress actually adopted that. And now that's actually in law. And, and I think we've actually seen some progress in terms of uh, not having, you know, sailors untrained and uncertified, uh, again, on large surface fleet sh- uh, ships. And and hopefully that's what I think, um, I'm speaking for myself at Sea Power and I'm sure other members, that's what we want in terms of getting specific um, problems here. Because as as the chairman said, that this is just happening too frequently, and, and that says that there's something more than just, um, you know, kind of um, – uh, 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 you know, trust us, we'll, we'll take care of this. We, we've we really got to look at the structure of command and, and control and decision-making. And, and Congress needs to step in and, and like we did with McCain and Fitzgerald, make real changes. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back.
1: Thank you, Mr. Courtney. Uh, the gavel order is as follows. Uh, Mr. Johnson and Ms. Spear, in that order, Uh, Mr. Wilson uh, will return and I'll come back to him when he returns. Mr. Johnson, you're up.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it very much and and thank the generals for their time. And uh, this is an important hearing. We did hear that heart wrenching um, testimony earlier, and it's uh, so disturbing to all of us. Let me just get right to a couple of questions. I apologize if some of this has been answered already in previous uh, statements or questions. My my Internet's been a little intermittent today. Um, but we know that we have multiple mishap. I know the term we're having concerns with as well. But mishap investigations have revealed that unit leadership properly reported on training and material deficiencies. But we have these reports that they were ignored or even later relieved. Um, how, how are you uh, remedying this? Let me ask this General Thomas, I guess. How are you uh, remedying this and empowering commanders to highlight deficiencies and escalate concerns without facing punitive action. <clears throat> and then secondly, how should a leader that raises these types of issues within their chain of command proceed when that chain of command is not responsive enough to ensure mission success and safety?
6: Thank you, Congressman. I, I, I think you're getting right to the, um, uh, the culture you know, issue. Uh, again, I, I would just start by, you know, uh, some of the things we're, we've got to instantiate with our leaders is the importance that they have in terms of oversight, identifying risk, and stopping operations, and then actually rewarding that. We are now uh, you know, incorporating some of that into our uh, commander training, new uh, commander uh, uh, training. But we also have to, we have to create the environment where if someone raises the alarm uh, within the Chan camp, or even just a junior Marine. But that's exactly what we want them to do. And we have to r- figure out ways to reward those Marines who are taking it. We would say, again, that's part of mission success. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, when you have a, a tragedy like this, it's, it's a failure from beginning uh, to, to end. If we can, uh, you know, with our education system, our reporting systems create an environment where people are comfortable. I think we'll make a lot of headway uh, towards the safety culture that we need.
7: I appreciate that response. One of the questions we have is: Is would there perhaps be value in developing uh, an independent safety process inside DoD for leaders to raise those issues? Um, and is that something y'all considered so far?
6: But, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of, you know, independent, you know, views just because of the ability to uh, provide eyes on that perhaps an organization may, may be missing. Uh, that is something that came out of uh, one of the commission safety reports. We do have uh, a mechanism within DOD, a joint uh, that has been probably more dormant than it ha- should have been over the past few years. That may be something that we could use going forward to instantiate some of the things that you just described, Congressman. It
7: it makes sense. I mean, from a layperson's viewpoint, um, that's just to us, it seems kind of common sense. But let me ask you one more question. Mishap investigations, as we know, often produce lengthy lists of recommendations for action. So um, what is your process for ensuring that those changes are actually incorporated in the services policy and, and doctrine?
6: We have we an have a oversight a panel led by a flag officer looking at all the recommendations and then having individuals, uh, you know, come back and, and brief on the progress that's made until that progress is, until the, you know, that action is actually complete. Part of that process, by the way, includes coming back to the subcommittee uh, and describing here's the action plan and here's the progress that we are making until action complete.
7: I appreciate that we we take that responsibility seriously and and i'm I'm grateful for that cooperation and and your acknowledgement of that so with that mr chairman I'll, I'll yield back
1: Thank you mr Johnson uh, General Thompson you uh Thomas, you correctly uh, said that in your uh, march twenty sixth memo the eight things and then the subsets And indeed, we will come back to you uh, in due course, probably six months or so, and say, is it actually happening? Are you actually doing these things? The other part of this, and this has been mentioned in your opening testimony, General Thomas, and that is the issue of accountability. Uh, We'll probably hear more about that. I'm now going to turn to uh, Ms. Spear for your uh, questions. Uh,
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your presentations this, um, this afternoon. Uh, General Thomas, you use the word preventable, that this was a preventable uh, set of circumstances. Major General Olson, you says it was senseless. Um, General Thomas and General Olson, do you both recognize that this was also reckless? General Thomas?
6: Congresswoman, I, I think that uh, uh, some of the actions taken were reckless, yes.
3: General, Major General Olson.
4: Ma'am, I was surprised at how cavalier some of the actions were. I would say that some of them rose to recklessness.
3: Would you support us uh, providing compensation to the families for reckless or gross negligence? General Thomas.
6: Yeah. Ma'am, but. Uh- I have to take that one for the record because it's a policy issue. This is something that we would come back to you with based on a response from the uh, along with our, our, our uh, leaders
3: at Office of Secretary of Defense. All right. Um, Major General Olson, yes or no?
4: Ma'am, I would have to associate myself with the assistant commandant's remarks. I don't know enough about the issue to speak authoritatively. All
3: right. Vice Admiral Kirshner. Actually, you're, you're muted. I'm <clears throat> I'm going to move on. Um, I think you're probably going to say the same thing as your colleagues. Um, who made the decision? Um, who was responsible for the readiness of the MEU?
6: Congresswoman, uh, I will I will you know give you a broad overview and, and uh, let General Olson fill in. But the the Marine Expeditionary Unit is a composite unit. And before it forms, comes together, normally six months prior to deployment, uh, those are separate units. And there's an individual that have uh, responsibility for the readiness of those individual units, nominally the division. Once the MU comes together, the MU has – the commander has responsibility for the readiness, and the MEF has uh, oversight responsibility. General Wilson, would you like to add something to that?
3: I want a name.
4: Elaborating briefly, ma'am, the commander of 1st Marine Division at the time would have been responsible for the initial readiness of the division units forming the ground combat element, as would the wing commander be responsible for the aviation units and the Marine Logistics Group commander be responsible for the logistics units that, com- that composited together to form the subordinate elements of the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit.
3: So that was General Castelvi,
6: correct? Joan Costelby was the division commander at the time. All right.
3: And um, he was found responsible for a lack of training. No action was taken against him. And and up until last week, he was, in fact, the inspector general for the Marine Corps, correct? That's correct. And he's now on administrative leave, I believe.
6: He's been suspended from his duties. That's correct.
3: Okay. Um, Who made the decision to deploy the AAVs that were in a lot designated as too broken to operate?
4: General Olson. That would have been the former commander, a Lieutenant Colonel board slated commander of the 3rd Assault Amphibian Battalion.
3: And who was that?
4: Ma'am, I don't have his name at my fingertips.
3: Okay, would you provide that to the committee? And um, you said, you have um, said to us uh, a number of times that eight people were fired in that chain of command. But as we all know, Firing in the military is not the same term as it is uh, in civilian status. So um, they were all transferred, but they're still in the military. Is that correct,
6: ma'am? I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. So it's actually 11, and uh, 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 the majority of those 11 are be cons- are being considered for separation from the service, and some have had uh, lesser. Uh, discipline taken against them. I would, I would just point out that one of those being held accountable suffered drowning injuries. One of those being held accountable, uh, you know, dove into the water to rescue uh, one of the Marines that came to the surface. All of those Marines have suffered traumatic uh, stress injuries. And, of course, as you know, they have to live with the decisions that they made that led to this incident.
3: I understand that. But if you go through the list of uh, problems with these AAVs, they make your head spin. It was egregious behavior. And uh, maybe we should be talking to some of those who have been, quote, fired to find out who, where the pressure was coming from that required them to move forward with this exercise. Four of the AAVs um, were inoperable once they were on the island. I mean, this was a death trap in which we put these uh, service members, uh, nine of who are now dead. With that, I yield back.
1: Thank you, Ms. Spear. We will probably have a second round of questions. And so for for my colleagues, uh, you should prepare for that. The gavel order is as follows, uh, Mr. Golden, Mr. Moulton, and Mr. Levin. Uh, Our Republican colleagues are uh, welcome to come back onto the screen if they would like to, and we'll intersperse them. Mr. Golden.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chair, you got me all right here?
1: Yes, please proceed.
9: Very good. Uh, A couple of questions for our uh, Marines on the panel. Uh, I think one of the, I think uh, the ranking member really started down this line of questioning. One of the biggest concerns was the inoperability uh, and just general unpreparedness of the AAVs. You know, the Marine Corps' job is to be ready to uh, fight, fight today, really. Uh, you know, this committee often has a conversation with the Marine Corps ongoing about what you need for the future. Uh, but what about readiness today? Uh, And in particular, as the Marine Corps is pivoting back to a real focus on amphibious operations, I'm very concerned about the uh, status of these AAVs for the next five years. Um, Would you say with confidence, either one of you, that this committee is fully aware of what the Marine Corps needs to ensure the operability uh, and, and general readiness of the AAV fleet in the United States Marine Corps?
6: Congressman, uh, I'll, I'll begin. I, I, I'm not sure if the, the committee is fully aware of what we are doing to ensure that the AAV is fully ready until uh, it's uh, sundown and, and 26. And we look forward to working with the committee on, on, on those things. Uh, I, would, I would tell you that uh, one of the things that, that we are learning about this mishap is uh, how we're actually reporting readiness. You know, the metrics that we are using. I think in some cases uh, indicated a higher state of readiness across the fleet uh, than was actually warranted. And I, I think General Olson can uh, speak to that. Uh, it's it's uh, I think the other thing that we have learned is based on this tragedy is that the uh, there were things as the AAV aged that made the previous inspection regime uh, no longer you know, appropriate. And that's something that we're going to have to pay attention uh, to going forward, but, but I would, I I would say. If I could
9: just, if I could just jump in, I I just want to really stress the importance that this committee knows what is necessary to make sure that you are in a state of readiness for amphibious operations as an organization. Uh, Don't let it be for lack of communicating. It's always admirable. You know, I was a Marine, sir. Uh, You know, we always say with pride that we make do with less, which is a great culture to have uh, on the battlefield, uh, but in, in terms of, of this communication and congressional oversight, uh, I think it can be a real danger and an impediment. Uh, the Marine Corps, I know, is interested in, in accountability in this instance, and I have full uh, you know, faith uh, that that is going to move forward with these investigations and that we'll get answers and the right steps will be taken. But I, what I want to know is that the Marine Corps is prepared to communicate to Congress what it needs and not think they're from the nation to ensure that our uh, marines are safe or that our sailors are safe. But just as importantly, this is a readiness issue. Are you ready for the fight? And is the equipment uh, in place that you need? I, 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 one thing that really jumps out at me is what looks like a, a lack of communications operability. Uh, the fact that one thing pointed out is that no one noticed safety boats in the water, not in the water, failed to notice the distress flag. Why wasn't there comms? Now, is there a lack of communications readiness between the Marine Corps and the Navy, between our AAVs and, and the ships that carry them? Uh, I'm very concerned about that. Have, have we given you the equipment that you need to carry out this mission successfully is what I'm trying to ask.
4: ACMAC, right, I'll take that if I, if I might. Go ahead. One of the upgrades that's being done to the remaining fleet of AAVs that will carry it through to 2026 is an upgrade to the radio suite, both for... Operability reasons and also for compatibility reasons with uh, the cryptologic requirements moving forward. Another place where communications failed in this tragedy was inside the AAV itself. All of our AAVs that will remain in service to 2026 will, re- will uh, be getting an internal communications modification as well. A third modification is to a backup battery power system for the emergency egress lighting system. And then a fourth is to put an uh, an upgun weapon station on it that's the same remote weapon station as will be on the amphibious combat vehicle. We're confident the funding profile for the AAV line and our ability to both cannibalize AAVs that are be taken out of service for usable parts or selectively interchange between AAVs that remain in service for, for usable parts will carry this vehicle in combination with the return to condition code alpha depot level effort, carry this vehicle to 2026 when the ACV is fully operational.
9: Yeah, I see that amount of time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Golden.
1: Uh, We're going to follow up on what Mr. General Olson just uh, said about reconditioning and the maintenance of this. I would point out to uh, my committee members uh, that it's going to come down to where's the money going to be spent. And the readiness subcommittee has had serious concerns throughout all of the departments about money being spent on new, bright, shiny equipment and while not maintaining the existing uh, equipment. So we'll be following that on all of the equipment that's being used uh, throughout uh, certainly the Marine Corps and also the other uh, uh, services. Uh, With that, I'll turn to... uh, I don't see uh, our Republican colleagues returning at this moment. So uh, Mr. Moulton, followed by Mr. Gallego, and then Mr. Levin. Mr. Moulton, hey, you're thank on. You, Mr.
10: Chairman, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. And, and let me just begin by re- reaffirming or seconding your last remark. Uh, I remember sitting on the deck of an amphibious ship off the coast of Kuwait before the Iraq invasion and loading ammunition into our rifles that was uh, that was dated 1967 and 1968 for the Vietnam War. So we can find countless examples across the services of places where we have not invested in the basic requirements for frontline troops. Those men and women in the infantry, uh, while we have no problem spending hundreds of millions of dollars on lots of F-35s that can't even reach China. So there's a lot to be discussed there in the broader com- uh, committee. Um, gentlemen, the MEC raid, of course, is one of several ways that you can get Marines to shore. and. Operationally, it's only approved for low-threat environments. General Thomas, in your written testimony, you state that amphibious operations is one of our core capabilities, and future operational concepts demand we increase our common understanding of the requirements of operations from the sea. General, as you know, the last major amphibious invasion, uh, my, my company's invasion of Baghdad aside, uh, took place at Incheon during the Korean War, 70 years later on 30 July 2020, what future, opera, 30, what future operational concept were these Marines training for? Were these Marines risking their lives for something that realistically we aren't going to ever do?
6: Congressman, I, I, I would just offer, you know, this. If you look at our new concepts, uh, expeditionary advanced-based operations, uh, particularly in the Indo-Pacific and the requirement to uh, seize key maritime terrain. Uh, I would argue that movement of forces over the surface will continue to be an enduring mission. Not the only one, some by air, of course, as you well know, and you've experienced uh, during your time with the Marine Corps. Uh, but it is uh, continues to be uh, a, 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 an important uh, mechanism that we'll have to use you know to uh, execute expeditionary advance base operations. Now the conditions are going to have to be set differently because of the threats, uh, et cetera. But just because of the size of forces and the equipment that we would need to move, uh, you know, move ashore, that is going to still be an important function for us.
10: Well, I just hope we're carefully considering that, and I can certainly imagine myself as a commander given the reputation for. AAVs in the Marine Corps um, uh, for at least the last 20 years that I've known, I would certainly be reluctant to put Marines in them if I had other options available, literally almost any other option available. Mm-hmm. So, I think we need to carefully consider that as we look at our capital requirements going forward. Uh, Vice Admiral uh, Kirchner, similar question to you. You articulated concerns in your written testimony um, uh, that have uh, led you to curtail waterborne operations are you also investigating whether or not AAV operations are relevant in future operating environments? And can we, when can we expect to hear the results
2: of those findings? Congressman, thank you for the question. First, we are looking with our Marine Corps colleagues at the, uh, the planning documents that we have and our documents that oversee AAV operations. And, uh, and we're making sure we're aligned there. I would echo um, General Thomas's uh, answers to, to the question where on a EABO concept and of fighting scheme of maneuver in the Western Pacific, there is still a need for that capability uh, to move large pieces of equipment and seizing that terrain and controlling stocks on some of the within the first island chain out there. So I do see value as we move ahead uh, and incorporate the new ACVs into the fleet. Uh, and additionally, we'll continue to work as one team in making sure we're, assi- you know, aligned on those policies and how we're going to employ those uh, assets.
10: My next question is about accountability. Historically, the Marine Corps has a culture of instinctively relieving everyone after a mishap or um, or a disaster without parsing individual command responsibilities. And I think there was an attempt to do this in the report. I read it thoroughly. Um, but uh, I I have to say I am heartened to know that the Marine Corps is looking at division responsibilities because that um, there clearly was some oversight there that should have happened whether it regards to COVID training timelines or basic oversight of this AAV battalion uh, clearly some things were missed so Mr. Chairman with that I yield
1: back and I have further questions if we come back around. Thank you Mr. Moulton. a couple of uh, your question goes to uh, the larger policy uh, issues, Mr. Moulton. I know that uh, Commandant Berger looks forward to an opportunity to explain to the full committee the Marine Corps strategies for the future. And embedded in your question or embedded in his testimony should be answers to the questions that you raised, which are fundamental uh, to our work. Uh, overseeing uh, and providing the necessary um, programs and money to carry out that mission. I'm now going to turn to. Uh, here's the gavel order that we have, Mr. Gagel, and then Mr. Levin. Mr. Gagel, you're on.
11: Thank you, uh, Chairman. You know, I actually spent seven months uh, living uh, on AAVs. uh, In the great uh, scheme of things, somehow the Marine Corps thought the best way to transport men around Iraq uh, was to shove us into AAVs. Uh, They were death traps when you were death traps. Because of that, I think in total, we lost uh, 18 Marines uh, to IED strikes uh, in uh, Iraq. Uh, And the—the—the you know the joke in the marine corps especially around leadership is how many marines can you fit into aav uh, always one more and that certainly was the situation why so many of my uh, brothers and brothers died because there was always one more we could fit in there we were jammed we were packed packed with uh, ammo uh, and certainly uh, you know set in a very dangerous precarious situation what what I, what disturbs me is that with with this report was that there was warning signs uh, and warning signs were missed. Uh, one of the things that I remember when I was enlisted in the Marine Corps, I was told if I ever saw something uh, that was uh, uh, endangering, especially in terms of any exercises, that I could call for an immediate stop and there would be uh, no uh, you know, ramifications for that, even if I was just a Lance Corporal. Well, clearly that's not true. Uh, and I think that's what happened here. So General Thomas, one of the things I want to get assurance from you is that you're going to work to change that culture right? Things happen in war. People die. I've seen it, been there. But the worst thing that can never happen, especially to our family members, is that when our men and women uh, die because of recklessness, uh, because of a a Marine Corps attitude that we have to be uh, tough and we have to be rough uh, during training, because that is the culture when we should be focusing on the actual training uh, exercises, not on establishing this culture of of um, uh, you know of, of just cruelty, uh, Spartan-like cruelty, which does not in the end create, in my inter- my opinion, deterrence or readiness. So, General Thomas, you know, uh, do we do you see that the people actually understand what happened and how this is actually going to move? Because we can update the uh, the AAV uh, all we want, uh, but it is you know really you know dumb muscle uh, usage, instead of actually, you know, brain power and management, they'll end up getting uh, more men and women killed in these types of uh, training exercises.
6: Congressman, I I, I would agree with you in terms of your your points regarding the safety culture. That's exactly what we're trying to get after. And then your experience of, uh, you know, when you were serving and how you felt like you could make, uh, you know, uh, raise a concern and be listened to that is something that we've got to inculcate across the entire uh, Marine Corps. I would I would argue, sir, that in many of our exercises that occurs every day, but clearly it didn't happen uh, in this case, so it, it shows that we've got a lot of work to do. The other thing that I would, would say is that when we talk about culture and, you know, Marine Corps culture, and the many of the members are familiar with that, is that, you know, a Safety culture and a culture of mission accomplishment are not mutually exclusive. As as a matter of fact, a safety culture is integral to uh, mission success. And that is what uh, leaders, that's what we're sharing with our leaders and leaders courses uh, 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 now. And that's what we've got to get all the way down to the deck plate level.
11: Thank you, General. And uh, Vice Admiral, When I was, uh, I think, a young PFC, I actually did a helo dunk training where they they put us in a helo and throw us underwater and, you know, with gear to train us to get out in case we ever, you know, had a helo operation that, uh, you know, hit water. You know, I I couldn't find that uh, in uh, the report. Maybe I just missed it. Was there, uh, you know, that type of training for these men on the AAV prior to actually even entering you know, water that's moving around in a, not a very controlled environment. Like a, you know, a dunk, a dunk takes. So they know how to get out, what to do, how not to panic, things of that nature.
6: Congressman, if if I may, I, I yes. that, I'll, I'll take that one if I can. Uh, that train uh, does exist. That is part of the underwater egress uh, right. uh, train. Uh, however, uh, the uh, the embark. Uh, troops on this particular vehicle did not do it. Were only partially uh, trained and did not do that. They were. They should have done that, and they should have never participated uh, in the exercise, having not completed that training. General Olson, would you add anything to that?
4: Sir, I would not say that we can put 240 people through underwater egress training a week at Camp Pendleton, and that's almost 10,000 a year if we use the device to its full capabilities the capability was there these marines were not trained in it
11: well i think that's uh you know you know for future if we're going to keep the aav platform then we also need to invest in the training side of it and maybe add more dunk takes in order for them to do this or else we're going to have this situation because in there and uh, you know trying to get out of the hatch and an emerging situation and i and i've had to do that uh with all your gear on uh, is is it's a horrifying experience uh, on land, and I can't imagine what happens when water's coming in. And, and God bless those men and their family. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back my time.
1: Thank you, Mr. Geogel. Uh We now turn to Mr. Levin.
12: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. General Thomas, I have some questions similar to those explored earlier. Given the conclusions of the initial Marine Corps investigation and the decision last year to suspend all AAV waterborne operations, pending a review that included equipment uh, and the concerns with these vehicles being pretty obvious, uh, are AAVs currently in use at this time to train or support the mission? And I ask because your written testimony describes AAV operations at Camp Pendleton last month, uh, but it wasn't entirely clear to me in your earlier response.
6: Congressman, the the resumption of AAV waterborne operations have resumed with uh, strict limits. There are no ship to shore or shore to ship, and they are only AAV crews for proficiency training. I think General Olson can provide some additional detail.
4: The uh, assistant commandant is correct. We have more gates to cross before we are prepared to return Uh, As was noted previously, we need to make sure that our our doctrine, techniques, and procedures are 100% aligned between the Navy and Marine Corps team before we can safely return to water operations. Right now, we are training crews to regain proficiency that they have lost over the last year, but they are not training with passengers in the back.
12: Thank you. In your testimony, you write that additional inspections with new criteria for hull watertight integrity bilge pump function and emergency egress lighting systems have been ordered. Have the new inspection criteria had an impact on AAV use? For example, were the vehicles that Major General Olson described as no longer allowed in the water because they leak in use prior to the new inspections criteria?
4: ACMAC, I'll take that. Sure, they were up until the 31st of July. That none were being allowed in the water until such time as we understood what the overall material condition of the fleet was. What we found is that we had ex- excessive leakage. We want to get that leakage down to about 18 gallons an hour, which is the standard that we believe is safe for operations. The, bump, the pumps on the vehicles can expel 400 gallons an hour, so there's a great margin of safety that can be achieved. We know that the through-hole penetrations for the suspension and some other places in the AAV are... Some water is going to come in, but we expect it to be a minimal amount of water and that the, uh, the pumps will be able to expel it at a far greater rate than it could come in. Just a, on a note from a previous question, the, arm, the amphibious combat vehicle is a different hull form and does not sh- uh, share many of the, the through-hull penetrations that the AAV itself does. It also has no plenums, which is the greatest source of our leakage.
12: General Thomas, uh, I understand that the Marine Corps canceled the uh, AAB survivability upgrade in 2018, instead opting to go all in on replacing the AAV with the ACV. That program involved upgrading AAVs with the new engine and transmission. The investigation into this incident found transmissions failure impacted the bilge pumps. So how would you reconcile the July 2020 disaster with the decision to cancel the program to replace AAB transmissions and were any steps taken to ensure the vehicles would remain safe, given the awareness that they were in need of upgrades,
6: Congressman? The uh, the mechanism that was to keep the uh, vehicles safe or up to speed was through depot repair. The uh, uh, so called RICA vehicles re- re- uh, returned to code condition uh, Alpha. Regarding the transmission, and I would defer to General Olson on this, but I, you know, th- there there have been no. Uh, significant problems uh, identified with the transmission. It is true that this particular vehicle had a loose, uh, you know, drain line, which allowed the oil to leak out of the transmission and eventually caused the engine, uh, you know, to, to uh, or the the uh, the system to uh, stop working. I do not believe that that is a systemic issue that's been identified. General Olson,
4: can you clarify? Mac, I recommend we take the remainder of that for the record and have PMAAV explain in detail. My understanding is the mechanical failure of this individual transmission due to the loose spring line that permitted the transmission oil to leak out. Not the failure of the transmission itself, but the fact that there was no oil
12: in the transmission. But may we please take that for, for the record and come back with additional detail? Sure, and I'm running short of time, but I have one final question. I understand the Marine Corps has contracted BAE systems for production of the ACV and that 18 of those vehicles were delivered in November of 2020 with the intent of fully replacing the AAV by 2028. General Thomas, what training is currently happening across the fleet to allow Marines to familiarize themselves with this new equipment?
6: Congressman, as as you know, the ACV has been introduced there in, in Camp Pendleton, uh, with a uh, appropriate uh, training program and certainly incorporating all the lessons
1: learned uh, from this tragedy.
12: Thank you, General. I'm out of time, so I yield back, Mr. Chairman.
1: Thank you much, very much, Mr. Levin. We now have a second round. We have about uh, very, very little time. Uh, on the uh, gavel order, Garamendi, Lamborn, Gold, and Johnson in that order, I'm going to just make a quick statement and then... Uh, Uh, not ask a question. Uh, This goes to uh, Vice Admiral Kitchener. Uh, The Navy's role in this is very significant and definitely led to the tragedy. You have a command uh, investigation underway. When that is completed, uh, I am certain you'll pass it over to us. I would anticipate a follow-up hearing on all of this Uh, sometime this year, probably in the late summer or into the fall. Uh, That'll depend upon two investigations that are now in process, a command investigation in the Marine Corps and similarly in the Navy. Uh, So with that, I simply note the Navy's uh, dereliction uh, in this process. My words, we'll see what the investigation comes forward. Mr. Lamborn.
5: Mr. Chairman, I'm going to, follow your example. Uh, I don't have any more questions. Uh, The committee has done an excellent job of probing into all the details. I think our work is cut out for us to monitor how this goes forward, Uh, the equipment and the training failures that we saw, uh, that those have to all be rectified. And we're going to be dogging this very closely. I also want to say the Marines on our uh, subcommittee and full committee are amazing uh, contributors to this overall understanding and getting to the bottom of this. Uh, Jack Bergman, Ruben Gallegos, Jared Golden, and Seth Molden, I think are all uh, wonderful additions who help us get to the bottom of this. Uh, so I just want to note that for the record, and I yield back to you, Mr. Chairman.
1: Very, very well made. We are definitely uh, enhanced by the experience of our members. Um, Mr. Golden, speaking of experience, how about it.
9: Thank you. I just had a, uh, a point I wanted to to make, and, and, and I guess also it, it would be a question as well for, for Major Thomas and Major General Olson. Uh, you know, when, when I was serving, uh, I was in the Third Battalion, six Marines in an in infantry unit, and there were times when we made decisions as a team, uh, as a unit to forego certain equipment requirements, uh, you know, I guess I would describe in Afghanistan being a small unit operating remotely in the mountains. We often made a decision to run patrol slick without uh, our sappy plates. Uh, confident that speed was uh, a safety measure in and of itself. Uh, some Marines were perhaps lost their lives as a result of a lack of sappy plates. But I, I think we also felt quite confident as a unit that we were making the right decision. Uh, you know, there have been other experiences in training uh, where I saw at, at the unit level, the squad level or, or the platoon level, decisions made about what type of equipment to go with or not go with, uh, which may have been contrary to what the you know, uh, the book may, ha- may have said. Uh, one thing that I noted in this investigation was discussion about Marines being found, uh, having gotten out of the AAV successfully, uh, still sadly losing their lives, being found uh, in their battle gear, uh, which prevented the flotation devices uh, from from being able to rescue them. Uh, some discussion that had they been deployed at the surface, it might have worked. Uh, but they were not in that situation. Uh, I am just curious, has there been any discussion in the investigation about what type of changes might need to be made in the culture to ensure that uh, Decisions could be made about what type of, of gear to deploy in. I, I know I personally would not have been confident uh, in an AAV taking on water to leave my sappy plate uh, and gear on and, and uh, you know, would have been looking for the flexibility to remove that. Uh, so what lessons has the Marine Corps learned? Uh, certainly the idea is that if you're going to be doing an amphibious assault, you want, you want the very best gear. Uh, but sometimes there are, you know, trade-offs that need to be made. So what what can you tell me about what the Marine Corps is learning as a result uh, of the information you've gathered from the investigation?
6: Congressman, we, are, we continue to review what specific gear uh, would be the most efficient to aid in the, you know, safe egress of troops leaving an uh, AAV. And I'll, I'll let uh, uh, General Olson, you know, go into more detail. What what I would also say is, that uh, as, as was, has already been discussed, this vehicle uh, slowly took on water for 45 minutes. If the crew had uh, only had the, uh, the embarked troops egress in a more timely fashion, whether they had their everything on, their flotation device was more than sufficient to keep them uh, afloat. That's, that doesn't uh, address your question, which is a good one, is that sometimes less is more, and we're, we're taking a hard look at that. General Olson?
4: Sir, I've got very little to add to that. Uh, the body armor is provided with a quick release. One of the things that we will examine is the interaction between the body armor and the life preserver unit, just to make sure that nothing is impeded. But we are going forward in a deliberate egress working group regarding how we get out of our armored vehicles, depending on what kit we're wearing. What I would note is that over the years, we have gone to a standard of you wear your protective gear inside vehicles because of things like rollovers, where that body armor actually shields you and prevents torso injuries, much as your helmet does. So everything's a compromise, but water and flak jackets may not be a good mix. And we need to take a very close look at that.
9: Thank you. Uh... Gentlemen, I appreciate your time today and the thoroughness of the investigation. I yield back, Mr. Chairman, thanks for the hearing.
1: Thank you, Mr. Golden. I will note that uh, because two of the AAVs, or maybe three, were found to be inoperable, they were left on the beach and the personnel that was in those were added to the other AAVs, some of those personnel did not have life jackets as they returned to the ship. So once again, fundamental safety was ignored. Um, I'm gonna now turn to Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson, are you still with us? Mr. Moulton uh, for a quick third round.
10: Uh, Just second round for me, um, Mr. Chairman, but I uh, thank you very much. Um, Just a a few quick points. Um, First of all, uh, gentlemen, uh, I obviously have some serious concerns here about how this all happened. I also understand the importance of hard training. And A a story that this brings to mind is my own experience of, of training in Kuwait in anticipation of our second deployment to Iraq. When we were brought to a shoot house and uh, I was the only platoon commander who brought his Marines to that shoot house completely on MVGs. It was considered a very risky thing to do. I felt we were prepared for it, but I have no doubt that there would be a hearing like this or at least a significant investigation if one of my Marines had been killed in that training. Many people would be inclined to say uh, Lieutenant Moulton was taking risks with training uh, that were not necessary um, because this wasn't Iraq, it was Kuwait. But Just a few weeks later, we found ourselves in a situation where uh, enemy uh, RPG gunners were shooting at Marines inside of a building um, because they had white light flashlights on. And I was very proud that uh, my platoon, at least, was safe from that threat because we were confident using our MVGs in an actual combat environment. So it is critical to me that we get to the bottom of this uh, investigation to understand what happened here. It is also critical. Uh, that we don't become a Marine Corps that is, not afraid, that is afraid of hard training, that is afraid of taking risks in training. Uh, it's a constant balancing act. We have to ask questions like, is this operation even realistic to justify the risks that we're going to take? And that's the leading question I had, the lead-off question I had for all of you. I'm not sure, in this case, uh, a waterborne mechanized raid uh, that it is. But we do need to do hard training, and it will entail risk. The second thing I want to say is that uh, we need to improve the culture of being able to question authority. And this is something that my colleague, uh, Mr. Gallego, uh, focused on. I'm not sure that that culture exists in the Marine Corps today. And uh, a recent trip that I made to IFC, uh, which might appropriately be renamed OCS part two based on what I saw, confirmed to me that this is not the style of leadership that is being inculcated in our junior infantry officers. I think that's something that we need to look at very carefully. The commandant himself is questioning assumptions, and I've praised him publicly all the time for doing that. We need to ensure that that same culture is encouraged among our junior leaders. Now, when we do that and when we talk about how to have accountability at the end of the day, we also have to be wary of having a zero-defect mentality. This is another thing I've seen in the Marine Corps where whatever happens, a ton of people get relieved, we don't actually get to the bottom of what really happened and we're not thoughtful about where that accountability lies. If you take that approach, then you're not gonna have thoughtful leaders, thoughtful leaders who, are, who know how to take risks and training that are appropriate, who know how to uh, balance risks with uh, the realism of the operation that they're training for, and ultimately who are gonna be willing to question authority themselves. So this is tough. This is hard, and I recognize that you are the ones in the fight. You are the ones who have to do this hard work going forward. It's going to be our job to ensure accountability, not just for these families, although I cannot imagine their loss, but also for every Marine who will come after them. The Marine Corps must be the nation's premier fighting force. We can't become a Marine Corps that only cares about safety, but we also have to be smart about how we get there. So gentlemen, thank you very much for for all your work. And Mr. Chairman, thank you for for your indulgence
1: of my questions today. Mr. Moulton, you could not have said it better and I will not repeat it, but I'll certainly uh, take your testimony. We'll write it up and we'll put it on a placard for all to see. Mr. Levin, your final.
12: No further questions at this time, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate our witnesses uh, being here with us today.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Lamborn, if you'd like to make some closing
5: remarks, I'll make mine following yours and uh, we will adjourn. I'll just briefly say, Mr. Chairman, uh, I'm glad we had this hearing. There have been some really uh, penetrating questions asked by each of the members of the subcommittee and others who joined us. And I think that uh, we're on a good path to at least get to the bottom of what happened with the training failures and the equipment failures. And even broader, the accountability issues that are raised in an incident like this. So we we have our work cut out for us to track this in the next uh, months ahead. And we're going to do that because we owe it to our uh, men and women in uniform and those who were lost in this horrific accident nine months ago. Uh, that they have the best training and equipment possible. And I'll work with you, Mr. Chairman, and other members of the committee to make sure we get that done. And with those who are serving us in the Marine and Marines and Navy, I thank you for your service, but we're going to have to work hard to overcome this. Thank you so much. I yield back.
1: Thank you, Mr. Lamboyne I'm going to uh, close with where we started. And that is the tragedy itself. The loss of life, the effect Uh, on the families, their losses, uh, and the uh, the sadness that uh, that exists. And it's obvious that's not just with the families, it's with their Marines themselves and the units uh, who lost their uh, partners in this accident. Unfortunately, we do far too many hearings on accidents and tragedies. Mr. Courtney spoke to those. Uh, we have also done our own hearings with regard to land-based accidents. Uh, and I suspect that we will do this again, but I would hope that when we have an accident in the future uh, that we will not find the kind of derelictions and uh, problems that occurred in this tragedy. So, with that, uh, General Thomas, General Olson, I will circle back on this in uh, several months and review the uh, work that has been done, not only with this accident, but with the uh, issues of uh, maintenance, uh, with the issues of accountability, and with the uh, very difficult uh, balance that uh, Mr. Moulton has brought to our attention in his closing comments safety and the necessity to have realistic exercises. So we'll go back through all that again. Uh, Admiral Kitchener, you've been mostly on the side here. Uh, We will review your uh, report when it is available. And I suspect that we will find that there is also very serious uh, derelictions uh, in the U.S. Navy uh, part of this uh, participation in this accident and the accountability going forward. I will continue to review these. I want to assure uh, the um, military, in this case, the Navy and the Marine Corps, that that this subcommittee is profoundly concerned about the readiness, the maintenance of equipment, whether that is a, a ship at sea or it's a AAV or any other piece of equipment. Uh, We do understand the need to bring on new equipment, but it is the responsibility of this committee that the existing equipment of all types be properly maintained and be available uh, when needed and be in full working order, along with the training that goes with that particular piece of equipment. And so with that, this hearing is adjourned. I thank you all for your participation.
0: day and where this hopefully is headed is a discussion about about what exactly is the problem that we're fixing again to ask the question that Will ask all the time what is that problem and uh, again if, if, if you'll take the time and you'll read what Walt Yates wrote um, the way this thing continues to happen is that people aren't held accountable. And let me tell you this, general officers aren't held accountable for the trend line of these continued incidents. Now, you can't do dangerous training without accidents happening. But those accidents should be because of anomalies that happen and things that could not be anticipated. So, um, tomorrow... The Mensa Brothers will discuss this. And Mike Marletto, former commanding officer of the 11th Marine Regiment, former chief of staff of the Marine Corps uh, of the 1st Division of the United States Marine Corps, will join me. And uh, the Mensa Brothers. So looking forward to that. So on this uh, Tuesday, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. If I can help you, if I can help somebody else that's struggling, don't be afraid to reach out. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm out.